Acts chapter 1, we'll continue our study through this wonderful book. Many of you know I have plans, Lord willing, to climb Mount Rainier in June of next year. I've never climbed a mountain before, but uh, I'm quite excited about the opportunity. I've done a little bit of research, and there's a few things that you just have to do today if you hope to have success tomorrow. If, if a novice like me hopes to make it to the summit of Mount Rainier, when you get there, you have to be in really good shape. So there's some things I have to do today, if you will, to hope to have success then. And I'm doing my best. I'm running, I'm biking, I'm working out, I'm trying to eat better. That's the hard one for me. Halloween has made it difficult. There is a big bucket of candy sitting on our counter at all times right now. And it's hard for me to say no, but you have to be in good shape. And so today you have to be working out. Secondly, you have to have a good attitude. Not just when you get there, but, but all along the way. And I'd like to think that I do. I'm excited about it. I'm expectant about it. I'm confident, kind of, about it. Every once in a while I remember, oh yeah, we're going to be carrying 50 pounds up the mountain. And that makes me a little bit nervous. But on the whole, I think I've got a good attitude about it. You have to have a strong support system. Again, not only when you get there, guides to get you up the mountain as a novice in particular, but hopefully some teammates, and I've got those that I'm thrilled about. Ricky Chapman is in our church. He's a three-time Ironman finisher. If you don't know what an Ironman is, that's a big old triathlon. Three times he's finished it. Uh, Ryan Backey, who's in our church, he's a former Army Ranger. And then a good friend on Fellowship of Christian Athletes staff, John Guthrie. He's an ultra marathoner. And then you get me. Right? And I've got friends and I've got family who are thrilled and who are supportive. And so I feel good about that. At the end of the day, if the weather's not right, you can be in great shape, have a good attitude and a great support system. But if the weather's not right, you can't even go. And so we'll have to pray about that one. These kinds of things don't guarantee success, but they signal, they may be indicators of success on the horizon. That's true for many areas of life, isn't it? Marriage. I hope, I trust that you want a thriving marriage, one that finishes all the way to the end. And there are some things that you and I can do today that may signal whether that will happen tomorrow. The idea of hurrying home. At the end of the day, so many of us, we will have to cheat at some point. We will either cheat on our home for the sake of work, or we will cheat work for the sake of home. The idea of hurry home. It's just one of those things that says, you know what, if it comes down to it and i got to cheat somewhere, I'm going to cheat on work so I can hurry home. If that's you, that's an indicator of success or celebrating the differences between you and your spouse. There are differences, are there not? Amen. Differences between men and women, differences between husbands and wives. And rather than those things be 
cause for friction. They can be cause for celebration. It's the way God has designed us. And so whether or not you celebrate those differences can be an indicator of what's to come. Or the cultivation of romance. It's so important to a marriage. The fun, the mystery, the life of a marriage. If you celebrate that or if you cultivate that today, it's a signal of good things to come. Or maybe it's not marriage. Maybe it's financial peace. But you want to be in a place when it comes to your finances where you're not always worried about them all the time. There's some things you and I can do today that signal success tomorrow. Things like giving to the Lord, honoring God first and foremost with all that he's entrusted to us. If, if that's one of the things you do, that could signal success in the future. Or, or in addition to that, keeping control on consumer debt. Debt can be a killer. So keeping a, a good watch on that, eliminating it altogether would be best. But if you're not there yet, bringing it down and keeping it under control. If, if, if you're doing that these days, it's a signal of good things to come. Or putting some money away into an emergency fund for those rainy days that most assuredly come. If, if you've done that, if you're doing that, that's an indicator of good things to come. Having a budget and sticking to it. There are things you and I do today that determine whether or not will be successful tomorrow. Well, how about with your church family on mission with Jesus? If you were here last week, we began this study in, in the book of Acts, and Matt preached a wonderful message on verses 1 through 11 and reminded us, among other things, that the essential task of the church is mission. To be on the move for Jesus. Building relationships with those who do not know Christ. And praying for them and loving them and serving them. And as doors are open, sharing your story and the amazing gospel of grace with them. Are there some things that you and I can do today that may not guarantee fruitfulness tomorrow, but may be indicators that it could be on the horizon. When I come to chapter 1, verse 12, down through 26, as I've looked at it all week long and trying to, to just sum it up, God, what, is, what, is, what do you have for us out of this passage? That's where my heart and my mind continue to go this week. This text is in between. 1, 1 through 11, when Jesus gave those final instructions to his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven. If you remember last week, they were looking up into heaven, and the angel said, why are you looking up into heaven? He's going to come back, just as you saw him go. It's in between that, the ascension of Jesus, and chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit of God is sent to fill his people and empower them for mission. In between those two events, we have this text. 
And I think maybe God is saying to us, Redeemer, take note. There are, this is the kind of community we'll see here that is going to be the recipient of God's powerful Holy Spirit and is going to take the gospel and be fruitful in their time and in their place. So take note of them. I see five things here. I want to share them with you. You be the judge whether or not these are the things that God would have us to know here. Let's jump in. Verse 12. Then they, these are the disciples who just saw Jesus ascend into heaven. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So about three quarters of a mile to the east of Jerusalem. So they had spent time with the risen Christ. They, he had given them instructions. They were able to ask him questions. And then he gave the final instructions. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And he had told them to go back to Jerusalem and, and wait until they received the Spirit. And so... In verse 12, they go back to Jerusalem to do as Jesus said, to wait. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. So those are 11 of the 12 disciples will come to Judas in a bit. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. These were no doubt the, the women followers of Jesus, or at least some of them, possibly some of the wives of the disciples. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, with Jesus' brothers. We also find out there in verse 15 that there's about 120 persons there together. The first thing as I ponder on this passage is here's a group of people with an allegiance to King Jesus. Why were they here? And all of the events that had just happened and the cost of being associated with this group of people, why would they be there? Jesus had had three years of his ministry and his teaching and his miracles and all of the hopes and all of the expectations that Messiah had come and was going to establish his kingdom and yet then he was crucified upon a cross. And yet three days later, risen from the dead. That's I think at the core of why this group of people were here, were waiting and revving to go. Because they had had an encounter with Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. 
Peter is listed first, and he will become a great leader in the church, as you know. Here is a fisherman who Jesus called, follow me. Peter left everything and began to follow Jesus, who ultimately became of great failure. He denied Jesus three times. And yet Jesus would go to the cross and would rise from the dead and would appear to Peter. Said, Peter, do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Shepherd the flock. And Peter, having had that experience with the risen Christ and experienced the forgiveness and the reestablishment of that relationship, is here. He'd gone back fishing, gone back to his old way of life, but now here he is. Why? The resurrection. Or his brothers in verse 14. They were, or earlier in the story, in the Gospel of John, they thought their brother Jesus was mad, crazy. And yet here they are. Why would these followers, why would these brothers of Jesus be here now? Especially when the stakes were so high. Because Jesus had appeared to them. They'd had an experience with the risen Jesus Christ. And they were committed and devoted to him. I hope that's why at the top of your list... That's why you're here. There's lots of good things that come, I think, with being a part of a church family. But at the top of the list, primary, I hope for you and for me, is allegiance to King Jesus. The Lord of heaven and earth. Who came and died upon a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and then rose victoriously from the dead. And who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And they would hear him. And they would receive their commission. And he would say, go to Jerusalem and wait. And they said, yes, sir. And they gather together. Because of Christ. What he had done. And what he was calling them to the second thing I see here is a commitment to a unifying vision. In verse 14, so we have these 11 plus the women and Mary and the brothers and, and dozens of others. And verse 14 tells us these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Oneness of mind. Some translations, with one accord. It refers to a group that is acting as one. And in this context, it apparently means that they were in agreement as to what Jesus Christ had called them to. As to who they were and to what his instructions had been. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. There was no confusion among them as to what they were to be about. And this can be so important for church families. And it's a great burden upon me, quite honestly, as, as your pastor. It's to try to get us all moving in the same direction. I don't know how many people are in here. There's 200 people, and I'm one of you. We probably all come to Redeemer Community Church with 200 different ideas as to who we are and what we ought to be doing and this, that, and the other. Opinions about worship, opinions about the preaching, opinions about kids' ministry, about student ministry, about groups' ministry. We all got our ideas as to what's good and what's bad and what we ought to be doing. Elders can do that, staff do that, leaders do that, members, we all do that. We all do that. That's why a unifying vision can be so helpful. That's why time and time and time again, I'll come back to this right here. Hopefully you found one of those in your chair. What are we trying to do? To joyfully follow Jesus and help others do the same. What is it, what, what's important at Redeemer? The glory of God. The gospel of God. The good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and offer them a new life. The word of God. The people of God. The mission of God. What's the rhythm of life around here at Redeemer? If I you know, if I want to get plugged in and get going, where do I go? Worship gatherings, discipleship groups, service teams, and mission circles. You're in a worship gathering right now. Awesome. We hope you'll get into a discipleship group, a smaller group of men or women or men and women together. We can sit around and eyeball each other and say, how's it going? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Service team. Kids ministry, student ministry, wherever it might be, using your gifts for the good of this body as we seek to accomplish something great for Jesus. And then mission circles, your circle, our circle in the world. That we leave, we leave these doors and we go out into a world of people who don't know God. And the Holy Spirit is at work out there and He's at work in here and He wants to use you and me as a blessing in those places where He takes us. How do we define a disciple here at Redeemer? What are the characteristics we would love to be true of all of us? Men and women, young and old, not for God's love, but from God's love, who seek God. When thou didst say to me, seek my face, my heart said to thee, O God, thy face I shall seek. Do you seek God? Who love others. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who pursue holiness. We don't make peace with our sins. But we seek by the Holy Spirit's power to put sin to death and pursue that which is good and noble and right. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all of your behavior who serve the church. Men and women who in relationship to the church families 
come in and say, how can I help? Where can I serve? Put me in, coach. Who steward resources generously for the kingdom of God. Who share the gospel. Who multiply disciples. I learned an illustration some time ago. We've shared it with staff and some of our leaders. Take this, you got this piece of wood and I put the the logo of Redeemer Community Church right in the center of this wood. And in about eight different directions, we drilled a hole and tied some ropes on that sucker. And so often what can happen with a church is that I'll grab one rope and I'll be pulling in this direction. And, you know, Jared will pull, take one rope and he'll be pulling in this direction. And maybe you're a community group leader and you grab a rope and you're pulling in this direction. And we're all pulling in different directions the way we think Redeemer ought to be and ought to go. Sometimes if, if we're not on the same page, if we're not of one mind, we can really be throwing off some sideways energy. And so the hope is to get everyone pulling in the same direction. And applying that in kids ministry and student ministry and groups ministry and missions ministry and whatever it might be. But, but on the whole, we would be trying to pull in the same direction. In Philippians chapter 1 Paul urged the Philippians to strive with one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel. And the phrase, the faith of the gospel, he probably, it's probably meant to be interpreted with one mind striving together for the spread of the gospel. I'd love you to take this and just stick it in your Bible. It's a bookmark. And then third, so an allegiance to King Jesus, a commitment to a unifying vision. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They had a dependence on God through prayer. It's implied in the text by the the simple fact that they did what Jesus said, go do. And it's implied, if you will, in Jesus' instructions. Hey, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. But go back to Jerusalem and wait. Don't you take one step into mission until you receive my spirit. And then off you go. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus knew, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so they were wisely obedient. As Jesus ascended and the angel said, what are you doing looking into the sky? He's going to come back. Oh, oh, oh yeah, you're right. Okay, y'all, let's go. No. They came back and they started to pray. What were they praying about? These all with one mind. It seems to me in context, they were praying about the mission that God had sent them on, that Christ had sent them on. And so the 
the nature of the calling was so far beyond them in terms of what they could accomplish, they knew they had to pray. And the the calling itself informed their prayers. So, So very practically, here's what I'd love to ask you to do. Would you stick this in your Bible? And when you go to pray for Redeemer Community Church, pray a thousand good things for it. But if you're stuck, I'm not real sure what to pray for Redeemer. Pray this. Pick a word or a phrase or two or three or the whole thing and pray this. Oh God, I pray that we would be a church family that seeks you. We can be so distracted, Lord. There's so much going on. We have so much to do. This this culture is so fast-paced and there's so many distractions. It's so hard for us to stop and slow down and, and spend time in your word and in prayer seeking you. God, would you help us at Redeemer Community Church, my brothers and sisters in the church family. I pray for them. As I pray for myself, God, make us a people who seek you. And oh, Lord, holiness... Good night, God. We struggle with sin. It's a fight of faith to trust you and to follow you into a life of purity or into a life of generosity or into a life of love or into a life of diligence. God, would you help us to be a people who strive for holiness? Lord, sharing the gospel. I know there's, there's lost people all around me and I know there's lost people all around my, my brothers and sisters at Redeemer. I, I pray, would you give us compassion like you have compassion? Would you give us open eyes to the ways that you're working in and around us? And God, would you use us Because to live into this, we can't do it in our own strength. You can't do it in your own strength. The person sitting next to you can't. The kids that you teach can't. The guys and the gals in your community group can't. But God can do this in and through us. And so we pray to Him. We're desperate for Him. And so we pray and and in this one mind about what Christ is calling us to can inform our prayers. So an allegiance to King Jesus, a commitment to a unified vision, a oneness of mind, a devotion to prayer. Fourth, a submission to Scripture. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, and there was, to get, there was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Verse 18 and 19 is an aside. We'll come back to that, about what happened to Judas. But Peter picks up in verse 20. 
For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. Let another man take his office. This is Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. This was Psalms of David, who was the anointed king of Israel, who was experiencing persecution and opposition from his enemies. And the early church would look back into those Psalms. King David, and that the Messiah would be a son of David. And some of those songs were even interpreted as messianic songs, directly looking forward to the ministry of Christ. And so when they saw a psalm of King David, who had those who opposed him and who persecuted him, they could easily look into those psalms and see things like this as referring to the enemies and those who opposed Jesus. And so in Psalm 69, Peter looks and sees a judgment on the enemies of David, a judgment on the enemy of the son of David. Let his homestead be made desolate. No one dwell in it. It's a word of judgment. And let another man take his office from Psalm 109. And so Peter, leaning into the scripture, therefore it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us from the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. There was a sense that there had been 12 tribes of Israel under the old covenant. Jesus had come and called 12 to be his apostles. Judas having defected, there was this growing sense that they needed to replace Judas. And that is what they did. But we just take note that it was the scripture that was leading them. In verse 16, they understood scripture to be from God. David had written the Psalms, but it was the Holy Spirit who was at work in and through David to produce the word of God. So in verse 21, therefore, may that be so of us. That when we see the scripture and when we understand what it means, that we would be quick to obey. To the extent that we get it right in the teaching and preaching ministries here at Redeemer, Let's incline our hearts to hear and to obey. Verse 23, so they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Let me just make a note on this, and then I want to make sure it gets to our fifth point. What about this idea of drawing lots for the making of this decision? I think, number one, we need to note that they were, first of all, committed to the Scripture. 
the Scripture had, had been that which led them to do this. Secondly, they prayed, verse 24, and they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. So they were committed to the Scripture and they were praying. Then they drew lots. What do we make of that? I think the classic answer is probably the best answer. The classic answer is, after the coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, we never see the early church casting lots again to help make decisions. And therefore, we should probably go with severe caution in our decision-making to this idea of casting lots. John Piper, one of my heroes, notes that on one occasion there was an incident in his church where the there was just, they didn't know what to do, and they had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and they had two options, but they weren't sure, and he says they cast lots. And that lot fell, and they took that decision, and it was a great decision. You do with that what you're going to do with it. I would say extreme caution, scripture, prayer, and before you even go to casting lots, you may want to get together some godly, mature brothers and sisters and say, here's what I'm thinking about. And let me also say this, because this happened in our church, believe it or not, years ago. This was a decision they were after between two right decisions. Is it this guy or this guy? We had a guy in our church years ago who was trying to make a decision between not a right and a right, between a right and a wrong should I stay with my wife and remain committed to her until death? Or should I leave my wife and four kids and go marry this other gal that I've been shacking up with? Y'all know what he did to make that decision? He flipped a coin and considered it the, the Lord's leading. If you do that, we're going to boot you out of Redeemer, all right? We booted him out. You can't do that. That's what he did. Well, finally, so here's, here's a community of people, that, allegiance to King Jesus. They're, they're gathered together because they'd experienced the, the crucified and risen Christ. He changed their lives, and they knew something was up. Secondly, they were of one mind. They knew what Jesus was calling them to. They were devoted to prayer. God, we can't do this without you. Please help us. They were submitted to the scriptures. Finally, they were sobered concerning the things of God. Where do I get that? Judas. Why does Luke record this about Judas in verse 18 and 19? Why does he take an aside? Peter starts talking, and then he's, Luke stops and says, well, before I keep on with what Peter was saying, let me tell you what happened to Judas. Now, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. When he, when he struck a deal with the leaders, the Jerusalem leaders, to turn Jesus over to them, he struck that deal for 30 pieces of silver. He eventually took that silver and threw it back to them when he was overcome with his guilt. 
they took that money and they bought this field. And so Luke could just as well say that he acquired the field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Dad gum, Luke. In Matthew, we learn that Judas went to hang himself. And as we put these two together, probably as he hung himself, he fell. Some think maybe he was doing it over a cliff of sorts, whatever. He fell, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. It became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, the field was called Hakodama, that is the field of blood. And then Peter goes on in these, these verses that he's looking back into the Psalms and saying that was fulfilled. The enemies of David, that was fulfilled in Judas, the enemy of the son of David. Let his homestead be made desolate. Let somebody else take his spot. And down there in verse 25 to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It's a, a euphemism probably for the place of judgment. Why did Luke put this here? Why is it enshrined in the pages of Scripture for 2,000 years? Why is it here for you and me? Probably to sober us to the reality of the things of God. That as we go forth on mission together, we go forth with massive things, important things, essential things. We go forth with a message about God and the devil, about heaven and hell about righteousness and sin, about salvation and judgment. Judas followed Jesus. He was one of the twelve. But as you go along in the story, apparently he was there because he thought the getting was going to be good. Jesus could feed you. That's good. Jesus could heal you. Boy, that's awesome. And Jesus is going to be the king. And I'm going to be one of the guys that's going to sit on one of the 12 thrones, and I'm going to rule with him. This is awesome. But then the idea that Jesus would go to a cross, and he would die, and those who would be his followers would be persecuted, imprisoned, and maybe even killed. When Jesus started to talk like that, Judas began to back off. He was in for a while. But then when Jesus didn't jump through his hoops, he was out. He was in when the expectations were, I'm going to get the goodies now. But when those expectations weren't met, and the reality of what it meant to follow Jesus Christ came down upon him, he was out. I don't think Judas is an example of one who was truly saved and then lost it. 
appears to me Judas is a picture of one who was following Jesus because of the goodies. But then when the cost of, of really following Jesus was presented to him, he said, you know what? I'm out. I think it's meant to sober us. One of my favorite quotes about the Bible, it goes on for a while, but it begins, this book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the happiness of believers, and the doom of sinners. It goes on to say a number of other things, but as it comes to a close, one of its phrases is, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Do you, do you trifle with the things of God? To trifle with something is to not take it seriously. To not show a proper reverence or respect. I think Judas and the language that Luke uses to tell us so much as his intestines gushed out is to sober us up, to remind us of the grandeur of these things and to urge us towards faithfulness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may these sorts of things be true of us we would be a community that is gathered together ultimately in allegiance to Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, who is of one mind, increasingly of one mind on what you have called us to be and to do, who does not see in and of ourselves the strength to accomplish what you're calling us to and is therefore devoted to prayer. Who submitted to the scriptures as the voice of God. And who sobered up to the massive realities of our great God and his gospel and his mission in the world. Lord, if there are any here today who are not sure about their salvation, who are not sure of how they stand before you, who are not sure whether their sins have been forgiven, if they have been reconciled to you,